to do two things tonight. I want to say a few things about this question of um, the, the challenge or the, the difficulty of this, uh, the command that God gives through Moses to Israel here in chapter 7. Um, I'll give you my aim in a second. But this question of um, did God really c- command Israel to kill, you know, to destroy these people groups, these nations? Um, well, I really thought I had that question written down. Let me take you back to, and my answer is yes. My understanding is yes. Now, uh, I, I say it, I don't mean it to be that simple. Because if you read a little bit about it, maybe you have it, um, obviously a, a debated point, a lot of different opinions. It's difficult, uh, to, it seems, at least on the surface, it, it's difficult to understand how God, all that we know about God, um, how could he? How could he require Israel to to go into a, a, a another you know the, the part of the land of another people group and and require them to kill every living thing, right? Well, I'm sure you saw those verses: um, man, woman, child, every living thing, even the animals. Um, I want to take you back to Genesis 15, just. The, as I thought about this, and we looked at this, we've already looked at it once, but I want us just to take our, remind us, to me, and I was surprised a little bit that our study guide didn't, didn't have this as one of the cross-references. Genesis 15 is the second place where God appears to Abram, and reiterates and expands, has him, gives him a little more information about the covenant. It starts in chapter 12. That's the first time in Genesis where God speaks to Abraham and basically says, I've chosen you. I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. In Genesis 15, he appears again. And, and just refresh, just look at the end of that chapter, um, Starting at verse 13, it's where he says, your, your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So, because Abraham had just asked him, Lord, you've promised me this land, but I'm, I don't even have a descendant yet. And God is saying, you're gonna, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give this land to your descendants, but it's not going to happen immediately. First, for 400 years, they're going to be in another country, be enslaved. He's referring to Egypt. Then he says, um, verse 14, he says, I'll judge that nation, the Egyptians, and I'll bring bring your descendants out with many possessions. And he says, verse 16, this is the key cross-reference to what we're dealing with in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. It is for me at least. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, which he's talking about the promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete, so kind of, which implies why do they have to be in Egypt for 400 years? Well, part of the answer, of course, we can't understand the, why this is, but in some sense, God was keeping up with the sins of the Amorites, which is another name for the... the and at, at, at 400 years, according to God's 
calculation, that was going to be it. And, and, he, and he names, look, and you look at starting verse uh, 19, 20, and 21, he names the people groups. And there's a larger set of names than what we see in, verse, in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. So that's one place. And then I had totally forgotten this. If you go back to chapter 12, one of the ways this, the tension is expressed is how is it, isn't it a contradiction for God to call Israel to be his people and to use Israel to be his testimony about himself to the nations in the Old Testament? And certainly isn't it a contradiction to the Great Commission? I mean, we learn through many places in Scripture that God, in fact, we talked about it in our, our God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How do we square this with that, that that we know about God? And one person I was reading, he pointed out that even in the first expression of the Abrahamic covenant, verse, this is chapter 12, verse 3, Genesis 12, 3, where he said, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. So even the, the first expression of the Abrahamic covenant had a two-edged, or, or there were two components to it. Um, so, but, but back to this question of uh, when, when he says, and you know, go back to Deuteronomy 7. So when he says in verse 2, When the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and shall no favor to them. And then he says it again over the end of the chapter. Um, the Lord your God, let's see, let me back it up. Is it 20? Yeah, and the Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You, you will not be able to put an end to them quickly, lest they, the wild beasts grow too numerous. But the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. Um, if you go back to, to uh, no, I was going to do it on Let me, all right, so um, jump ahead to chapter 20. And I think our, our study guide even gave, this, gave us this as a reference. Over in chapter 20, verse 13, And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but... In the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. He names the people. And what's interesting to me about that, that passage is he makes that distinction. The people then these groups, you kill the men, you save alive the women, the children, the animals. But in these cities that are close, you kill them all, you save alive nothing that breathes. To me, that's pretty explicit. Whether I like it or not, whether I can square it with my, my concept of who God is, uh, I, I've got to, I, I, can't, I can't come up with a, an answer that denies it. It says that, which I read. I read one version of an explanation um, of a, a person who 
The website is livingroomtheology.com. It just caught my attention. And uh, anyway, um, but here's another another text that I, I kind of remembered this one. It, it's a little bit different, but it it's it's similar in that does God command people? Ha, did not not does he? Did God command Israel? Were there certain situations where God commanded Israel to kill a population group? So, and you may remember this, and jump ahead to First Samuel um, chapter 15. First Samuel 15, that, that whole chapter, that is the account of bet- between Samuel was the prophet, Saul was the king, and still the king at that point. This is the t- this is the chapter, the event at which God rejected Saul as the king. And you remember why? Um, I'm, I'm just going to scan through the chapter. Uh, the Lord, this is Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over the people of Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now, he, so this is the instruction to Saul. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people, 200,000 on foot, 10,000 men of Judah, and they went. Look at verse 8. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs, all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Samuel came to Saul in verse 13. And Saul said to him, Blessed be be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Isn't that just like... What? You say you've you've obeyed the commandment of the Lord, then why am I hearing all these sheep? Because I kind of remember God said, kill all the sheep. Saul said, well, they they brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. In verse 32, you get down to the end. Bring me, I I remember reading this passage at some point in time and, and just one of those verses you just. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childish among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. So. And I, I say, I read this text to, I bring, I bring our attention just to encourage us to uh, be ready for the Word of God to say things that just don't sit well. Uh, it, they just, they're, they're just counter to, <laughs> to a lot of our, to our, our uh, you know, we think to our humanity. Um, do we like it? No. Do we understand it? No. Can, can we? But it's there. It's there. So, so I believe, yeah, did God, uh, when, he, when, when, Mo, when Moses told him to do what he said to these seven people, I think that's what he meant. 
Now, the other thing I want to um, do tonight in a few minutes is uh, I want to talk about the structure um, of the chapter. My, so here's my aim for this, this section. I don't, I don't know if you guys, uh, how y'all re- reacted and interacted with this, this chapter. But the more I read it, and of course, I mean, you, you, you know, you, going in, you have that initial uh, shock of what do I do with this? And, 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 it, and as I was doing that first section in the study guide, and I, and I want to encourage you because apparently it's, it's the pattern, the kind of the first thing now is, you know, read the passage that we're studying, give it a title. It, particularly if it's a continuous uh, section like tonight was chapter 7, break it into paragraphs and title each of the sections. I encourage you to do that to help just to kind of, and that involves reading the text several times and trying to get a flow. You know, why, what, how does it hang together? Why does he say this here? And why is that followed by this? And why is that followed by this? Because it is a human author writing this. He's using rules of language and so forth. That, that's it. Part of what I'm saying is because of, uh, years ago we were taught here in this church the principle of authorial intent is, is a, a, a principle of how to interpret the Bible. You want the big word for that? Who knows the big word for how to interpret the Bible? Hermeneutics, right? The hermeneutical principle is... The principle of authorial intent, meaning the author, the person who wrote a portion of the Bible, was a real person in a real place, in time and space, a real culture, a real setting, writing it to other people with an intent to communicate something. It's not just a bunch of uh, just thoughts that they, they just write down with no particular meaning intended because they really just want whoever reads it to come up with their own meaning. Some people read the Bible that way. It is absolutely not the right way to read the Bible. And so one of the things that, so here's now, so my aim, and then I'm going to tell you what this is. This is my, this is my uh, version of PowerPoint. Works every time. You know, fully charged, right? That's right, that's right. Um, here's my aim. By, and if you're listening to this on, on uh, the, the uh, recording, I'll just have to describe to you my little hand, my little PowerPoint. It's not really PowerPoint, it's a piece of paper. Here's my aim, to cause the audience to know that holiness does not happen by accident. The more I read the text, because initially I, was, I just wasn't locking in on holiness. I know that that was the title of our lesson, but that wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the thing that was coming to me as I was reading the text and, and you know, doing the, trying to looking for the paragraphs and trying to title it and so forth. But the more I did, I finally came around to saying, yeah, I think holiness is key. In, in course, verse 6, where is it? He gives, the, he, give that, he gives those tough commandments in the first five verses. And verse 6 is, one re, is, is an indication of why did God require them to, to take this drastic action toward these seven listed here, at least seven different uh, city or people groups. Verse 6, 4, here's the reason, at least part of the reason, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. So this concept of, the, of them being holy to God is, is part of the answer, foundational to why was it they needed to kill these people groups to remove them from the land because they're holy. 
So holiness is something, there's something about holiness in this text. And as I worked through it, I thought, well, in terms of how, the, what's, what's an application of this chapter to us, I wanted it to be something about holiness. And so I ended up saying holiness doesn't happen by accident. So let me get to this. So this thing, this, uh, what's my word, chiasmus or chiastic? How many of you remember in recent and previous studies where we've talked about this structure? It, it's, a, it's a literary structure. You can Google it. Um, and, and the idea is that, they, that several thoughts are given... And so in the way I've got it structured, and I'll, we'll see it in this text, um, there's, a, there's a, like an A, B, and a C thought, or in this case, A and B. In this particular text, C is the central thought. And then, they kind of, then there's a mirror or a reverse order of the same point. That's why you see on the, my little diagram, there's A, B, C is the central thought, and then the next thought is B prime, right? Y'all see that? B prime. And then C prime. And so let's look at the, I mean, yeah, yeah, A, B, C, B, A. All right? So if you see that structure, and it's all through the scriptures as it turns out, um, it's a literary device, and the intent is to draw your attention to the central. In this case, the C. What is you know whatever it is that C represents in my little diagram, is to bring you into that C point and then bring you back out with with complementary thoughts that got you there. Complementary thoughts to get you back out. So, in looking at chapter seven, of course, the very first thing that he talks about in chapter seven is this requirement to destroy to remove these people. Right? You saw that. That's pretty obvious. And then I, somewhere along the way, I noticed when we got to the end of the chapter, he's kind of coming back to that same point, that same topic. And we, we read it just a minute ago. The Lord, it, it is, it's a little different. It's not exactly the same, but it's the same idea. In, in the first, in the A part, which so, so here's, um, uh-oh, let me find it. Let me find it so I give you the right version. Here it is. Okay, so let me give you some words. Yikes. My, my, my page split. Okay, here we go. So A, oh, you're going you're gonna to love this. No, okay, no, no, you won't love it. I'm not going to give you that. That's not the one I want you to have. There's actually two different commentators that I looked at saw this same structure. They, they labeled it. They divided it slightly different, but they both saw, uh, saw the same structure. So here it is. A is verses 1 to 6, the first big capital A. And, it ha- and the, the topic, the label is destruction of the Canaanites and their gods. That, that's pretty clear, right? Pretty, everybody agree with that? The first six verses have to do with destruction of the Canaanites and their gods. And if you, if you, so let's just A, now let's go down to A prime, which puts us at the end of the chapter. So verses 20 to 26. Again, destruction of the Canaanites and their gods. Now the difference is in A, it's a command to Israel to do that. In, in A prime, verses 20 to 26, the emphasis is 
God's going to do it. Israel's going to be involved, but God is, you know, the one actually doing it that's emphasized in that last few verses is that God's going to do it. But it's, again, very similar. Uh, it, the, the emphasis is on their gods. What, verse... Um, yeah, verse, in, the, in the first part, the capital A, verse 5, you shall, Thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images. And when you flip back over to the end of the chapter... Uh, verse 25, the graven images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take them for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. So you see the parallelism between the, the first topic and the last topic. So that's A and A prime. Then, so back up to, now let's go to B, capital B. This guy, and I like the way he said this. So it's verses 7 and 8. And he labeled it God's love for the forefathers as the reason for the exodus. Look at, look at 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his love on, on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of these up for these peoples. For you are the fewest. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So there's that reference to, ex, to the Exodus. And he's saying that, that the reason the Exodus happened was God's love for the forefathers. And that brings us to the central part of the chapter C. And that is Yahweh as the faithful God of covenant love. So he gets through, verse, through the first eight verses, and verse 9 says, Know therefore, so the therefore is key, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God. In other, implying nobody else is God, none of these other things are God. The Lord your God, Yahweh, your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. But repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. So that's the central part. That's the, um, the core message of this chapter, that's the, the, the writer gets us down to that truth as, as fundamental to why Israel, why they were who they were and why they were called to do what they were called to do. Because God, their God, their Yahweh is God. He's the faithful God. So faithful in what sense? He's faithful to the covenant that he made with the forefathers. And, and we've been seeing that connection. You know, chapter 7 is not the first time we've seen that. It's been all through, and I'm sure we're going to see it some more. So then coming back out, starting at verse 11, 11 through 19. Now remember, so we're now on B prime, right? So let's go back and look at B. B was God's love for the forefathers as the reason for the exodus. So now in, in verses 11 through 16, God will fulfill the promise to the forefathers. So remember the Exodus. 
Look at set, so let's look at eleven through sixteen. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you to do to do them. It shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep them and do them that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he, sw- he swore to your forefathers. So here, there's that reference back to the forefathers, the covenant that God made with their forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. And he goes into very specifics about the blessings. All the way down through verse 16. And then he, he brings it back. Remember, so this one I said was, you know, God will fulfill these, these promises that he's, that he's enumerating up through verse 16. That's, that's the details of the promise he made to their forefathers. And so he says, verses 17 and 19, so remember, remember the exodus. And that's what he tells them to do. And he, he, he gets into that by posing that question, anticipating that question, verse 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember, verse 18, look at that. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. And he again, he kind of takes them back. So do you see the parallelism between the B and the B prime? And then finally, as we've already said, he gets back out to the A, B, C, B, A prime, which is... Therefore, you have to destroy these people and destroy their gods. Now, I realize, in case, if you're really paying attention, you, you, you may have noticed that all of that doesn't necessarily lead you to holiness, not directly. Um, but I'm not worried about that. I still think my aim, I, I still like my aim. Holiness doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> um, because I, I really am struck, I'm excited, I'm fascinated by this, by seeing verses 10 and 11, by seeing verses 9 and 10. It's 9 and 10, right? Yeah, 9 and 10 is my central, the C, A, B, C, B prime, A prime. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces. Was it was it last week that we saw a text that said God will um, punish him personally? Remember that? Was that last week or two weeks ago? I meant to look it up as a cross-reference. Um, what strikes me about this is in this chapter, there's both sides of God, of God's his, his faithfulness, graciousness, uh, you know, covenant faithfulness, his love. He said his, his love for Israel, his mercy, that, that positive side of God towards Israel, which is captured in verse 9. But then there's that wrathful side of God, which is, is, is being expressed in the commandment toward these people groups who, going back to Genesis 15, God told Abraham... I'm going to bring your descendants back in 400 years because that's when the sins of the Amorites will be complete, implying that's when time's up and I'm going to deal with it. So even, just think about that. It sounds awful at this point in time. They've had 400 years of God's patience. 
um, before he wiped them off the face of the earth. So, so, so that both the the uh, the the, the how, how can you capture the this is you know, from a human standpoint the or let me say it this way the attractive attractive to me as a human the attractive part of God and the not so attractive part of God you know the part I like the part I don't like right both of those are in these two verses. Um, it, so it just fascinates me the stru- how to see that in the structure. Now, let me close up with um, this notion, this my aim. Holiness does not happen by accident. In our, in our question, our study guide, question uh, five and six, question five had you realize that, uh, that, that, Israel's special status as being holy to God and God's treasured possession, because that's who they were, that's, that is what, why they were required to take the drastic action that they were being commanded to do. And then question six points out, well, we too, as New Testament believers, we are holy to God. First Peter. Peter quotes from these texts. We're and going all the way back to, to Exodus 19 that we've looked at before. So we're holy to God. So what is there? Do we have a similar obligation? In what sense, if any? And I said, well, we are certainly called to love God wholly with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew 22, where, Matt, where Jesus and he does, Mark as well and Luke. Um, According to Peter, we are chosen by God to be his treasured possession, a royal priesthood. Unlike Israel, though, we are not called by God to enter a land and dispossess from it a group of pagan nations. So we're not going to kill anybody who is worshiping a false god. What we are instructed to go to go what we are instructed to go by oh, maybe this is a sentence, maybe it's not. What we are instructed to, go, to do, I think, by the New Testament writers is to be careful about the spiritual influences that we allow into our lives. We can be drawn away from devotion to God by a number of things. So, again, I'm picking up on that idea in our text. One of the reasons for why God said, go in there, destroy the people, and burn, destroy all the artifacts of their religion. Remember that? And, I'm, and I see places in the New Testament where we're given very similar instruction. Go to 1 Corinthians 10 as one great place. In fact, just write down 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and following and just make, also make a note of 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and following. Chapter 10 is another place in the, in the New Testament where Paul draws back to the experiences of Israel, not this specific part that we're studying in chapter 7, but back to the times when they're in the, wandering through the wilderness. And he says, verse 7, he said, he said, these things took place for them as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, 1 Corinthians 10, 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And he talks about how they sat down, they were the sexual immorality, and 23,000 fell. Um, and he gets on to verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, remember, he's talking to New Testament believers here. Now, they were living in Corinth, and they were, 
probably there were pagan uh, temples and so forth. We don't so much have that. We don't, but other cultures do. Other people, other New Testament believers reading this text, our friends in India, for example, they, they would, you know, yeah, temples of false pagan, you know, pagan worship. Sure, this will, <laughs> and we, have, we have one in Memphis or two maybe, but uh, not a big part of our life. But, but here's, here's the thing. He, he get, he, this whole section starts with some discussion about eating meat sacrificed to idols and whether that was right or wrong and some, nothing wrong with the meat itself. But, but Paul ends up, um, he said, look, verse 18, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And apparently, not only, you know, some were just going to the back of the temple, kind of where the meat market was, and buying the meat. And taking it home and serving it. And apparently, if, if your conscience is fine, that's fine. There's not a problem with that. But others were taking it a step further, apparently, and said, well, you know, I want to be, I'm, I'm embellishing it a little bit. But they were literally going into the temple and, and in some sense, participating, thinking, I, you know, I just, it's just meat sacrifice. I know there's, it's false, so it's, there's no problem. And I think Paul is saying, oh, there is a problem with that. There is a line that, that's drawn that, that, that you can go across that you ought not go across. That's what he's saying. And so my point is, um, there are things in our lives, in our culture, or, um, that we could, we could put ourselves in positions where we could be drawn away. You know, spiritual influences, I guess is what I'm trying to get to. We could expose ourselves to spiritual influences that we ought not. We need to be careful about that sort of thing. And then in just the Second Corinthians 6 is that, that, that uh, exhortation where Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, we, a lot of times, most of my Christian life, I've heard that applied to marriage. It, that's probably a, a legitimate application, but that's not the immediate context where Paul, that Paul was dealing with here. But just, I'm, just go, drop your, your, let your eyes fall to. He's, that's at the very end of Second Corinthians six. And where does he end up in se- chapter seven, verse one? So it's part of one of those places where there shouldn't have been a chapter division, where they put this one. Because what does he say? Chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these promises, the things he'd just been talking about, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So again, there's some application, some expectation for us, uh, some and uh, uh, holiness. And what do we mean by holiness? Essentially, separation unto God, devoted to God. And so we want to be, we want to be aware of what things in our lives um, could distract us from devotion to God. And as I say that, I can you know ten things pop into my mind immediately that just condemn me. 
I mean, I don't know if you, but I, one of the things that I've been seeing in, in these last, these, the chapters of Deuteronomy so far is this idea of being careful. Be careful to do all that I'm commanding you. And I thought, gosh, why careful am I? <laughs> you know, I don't want to be careful. <laughs> I just want to kind of live my life the way I'm living my life. You know, I think I'm doing pretty good. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's grand. I'm a pretty good neighbor. You know, AutoZone, they think I'm a decent employee. I love my wife. You know, yeah, yeah, I mean, you get that. Some of you may not, you think, I can't believe you're saying that. Um, but this, but Deuteronomy is saying, that's not, that, I want you to be careful to obey. So let me close with that. Father, we again thank you for Deuteronomy. Thank you for this text, Lord. And we ask you again, I ask you, I think about how Paul told us, that all Scripture, and he was talking about the Old Testament, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Lord, would you help us understand and see in Deuteronomy the truth of that, that how we could see how Deuteronomy, the things we're talk, that we're studying about you and your expectation and your grace towards us, all the things we're learning, how you dealt with Israel, can we learn from that, from them and from you? Um, Would you do that for us in Jesus' name? And really for his sake, we ask it. Amen. Amen.